0: back to mark's madness now part of chunk loop do it by myself again like the whole podcast again though because prez is here I i'm here just doing too the i'm just doing the boops by myself i'm not a um, musical person <laughs> uh shigmani 2 was going to join us back after a uh two-week hiatus uh but they're having a little trouble getting on um, some technical difficulties so Maybe they'll join by the end of the episode, but probably they'll finally be back next week. Um, In the meantime, welcome back to Mark's Madness. We read books. Um, We are here to continue on our Stuart Hall reader put together by Prez, and Prez is here joining us um, for the reader. Um, As usual, we try to tend to start with current events. Um, That's something that kind of evolved way back uh, from the Mark Madness side uh when we were doing black reconstruction because current events kept coming up and you know they tie back to the the reading but we didn't want to have to to force it in there wedge it in there or miss an event that's important to talk about so we still tie back to stuff while we read but you know we lay this out at the beginning and the one i have is in ecuador um we talked in 2021. This is when, you know, uh, Andres Aras was widely expected to win the election in Ecuador. And this is after the lawsuit by Stephen Dozinger against ExxonMobil and uh, what they did to indigenous people in Ecuador. Um, since then, of course, you know, uh, ExxonMobil has taken it out, uh, putting Stephen Dozinger on house arrest. And Guillermo Lasso won a surprise victory, very unfortunately, to continue on Lenin Moreno's um, US friendly neoliberal policies. Uh, This course, at the same time, or the same year later on, Gustavo Petro, or not Gustavo Petro, goodness, that's uh, (laughs) that's Colombia, Pedro Castillo um, won a surprise election in Peru. And he did not get much done in the meantime. He was basically bullied out of the cabinet he wanted, um, also was a little bit moderate and, you know, continued on some, um, you know, extraction industries against, you know, some of the indigenous groups that elected him. And then with new cabinets basically forced in by right wing bullying, he was further and further centrist until eventually they tried to impeach him and he dissolved Congress. Uh, with something that was constitutional, it was a mechanism of the constitution that's supposed to do this, and it's not really dissolve. It was uh, set up for a snap election. Well, uh, there's a similar setup in Ecuador's constitution, and now um, it, Guillermo Lasso was being tried, being impeached for. Corruption, right, and specifically corruption for the state's energy industry. Um, so basically, exactly what Exxon was getting sued for, and exactly what the U.S. wants—wants wants that oil and and other energy um, uh, resources out of Ecuador. Um, and sure enough, Guillermo Lasso, in the face of this, dissolved Congress, and there's going to be snap elections done up by an election council, which I believe in this case, um, Guillermo Lasso's party is largely running. So this is kind of getting covered. It's not getting covered much in Western media. Unlike, um, the hand wringing over, um, Pedro Castillo doing the same, uh, for, you know, other, like, because Pedro Castillo was getting attacked for bullshit reasons. This is very provable. what Guillermo Lasso was doing, um, so the same thing happened, and not only is there not nearly as much Western media coverage, the Western media coverage doesn't have nearly the same hand-wringing tone, but the very few times it is being covered with any sort of scrutiny, even by you know outfits like foreign policy, which you know what kind of rag that is, um, it's getting equated to the same thing. And it's the same mechanism, but it was very different situations, you know, um, this one's actually like provable corruption, not just getting bullied out by by people that don't like that you're not slashing every social program known to mankind. So these are coming from exact opposite spectrums, but they're getting equated. Um, and yeah, so this is very terrifying for the people in Ecuador. Right? They're they're in a big battle and. They've been using every democratic mechanism they can that this you know bourgeois system has allowed them uh, to try to you know take any kind of rest any kind of power they can, and we all know you know electoralism is not going to fix it, but you should make any kind of gains you can in power any tangible way as long as you're not sacrificing your principles for that gain, and um, this is undercutting you know an immense amount of gains. Um, of the ecuadorian people and setting back you know any kind of revolution just like lasso winning the election in the first place did so this is very very bad news and i wanted to get an eye on that and as usual kind of sniff out the bullshit in those headlines um do you have any current events or any input on ecuador Prez?
1: i do not um uh, just whatever's going on in Ecuador or Colombia. And I think something happened in Colombia, too. The suspension was triggered by the killing of four indigenous teenagers by rebel group EMC FARC, uh, who I am
0: not familiar hmm. with. Okay. I will have to look
1: into uh, that. It doesn't seem like it's there. a wider ceasefire. It seems like it's that
0: specific group. Okay. I think with that, we can probably get into the reading. Um, We're starting on part two of the Stuart Hall Reader, Um, so I'm sure we have the reader in the show notes if we haven't sent it out already. That would be on page eight of the reader. And it starts, It is to these deeper connections and to their fertilizing impact on the search for more adequate theorizations in the field that we now turn. I will try to elucidate some of those core concepts in Gramsci's work which point in that direction. I begin with the issue which, in some ways, for the chronological student of Gramsci's work, comes more and more towards the end of his life. The question of his rigorous attack on all vestiges of economism, and we talked about economism last time. Class reductionism was the term I couldn't figure out, but economism is much more appropriate since we're talking about Gramsci. Um, All the vestiges of economism and reductionism within classical Marxism. By economism, I do not mean, as I hope I have already made clear, to neglect the powerful role which the economic foundations of social order or the dominant economic relations of a society play in shaping the structural whole edifice of social life. I mean rather a specific theoretical approach which tends to read the economic foundations of society as the only determining structure. This approach tends to see all other dimensions of the social formation as simply mirroring the economic on another level of articulation, and as having no other determining or structuring force in their own right. The approach, to put it simply, reduces everything in a social formation to the economic level and conceptualizes all other types of social relations as directly and immediately corresponding to the economic, which of course, you know, uh, start right there and mention that makes colonialism make no sense because colonialism obviously has immense, immense economic underpinnings. Right. Um, but it's not a purely economic function. So it is important to to realize that larger social relations.
1: Stuart Hall's, uh, the West and the rest and the whites of their eyes get into that more complex, uh, relationship between culture and hegemony and then the economy. So, mm-hmm.
0: Good, good. All right. Recommended reading, folks. If we don't come across it here, um, this collapses Marx's somewhat problematic form- formulation: the economic as determining in the last instance to the reductionist principle that the economic determines in an immediate way in the middle, in the first, middle, and last instances. In this sense, economism is a theoretical reductionism. It simplifies the structure of social formations, reducing the complexity of articulation, vertical and horizontal, to a single line of determination. It simplifies the very concept of determination, which in Marx is actually a very complex idea, to that of the mechanical function. It flattens all mediations between the different levels of a society. It presents social formations, in Althusser's words, as a simple expressive totality in which every level of articulation corresponds to the other, and which is from end to end structurally transparent. I have no hesitation in saying that this represents a gigantic crudification and simplification of Marx's works. The kind of simplification reduction has once led him in despair to say that, if that is Marxism, then I am not a Marxist. Yet there certainly are pointers in this direction from in some of Marx's work. It corresponds closely to the orthodox version of Marxism, which did become canonized at the time of, Second Inter- of the Second International, which often even today is advances the pure doctrine of classical Marxism. Such a concept of the social formation and of the relationships between its different levels of articulation, it should be clear, has little or no theory theoretical room left for its ways of conceptualizing the political and ideological dimensions, let alone the ways of conceptualizing other types of social differentiation, such as social divisions and contradictions arising around race, ethnicity, nationality, and gender. And clearly, I mean, that's the big thing, right, is there's there's much more complexity, like was named here. There's race, there's nationality, there's gender, there's all kinds of different power structures and relations that come into play, uh, but also individually, if you go overly rigid um, and, and overly functional, you know, you, you lose explanation for the fact that classes are large groups. And, and so where Marx understands, like, class interest and people following class interest and people's minds being molded to what their class interest is. Um, remember, materialism means from the material, from evidence, um, not necessarily your surroundings molding your thoughts but historical materialism means your surroundings mold what ideas you have and what ideas you can put into action towards history right um but even with those limitations there are of course outliers right angles is one um and how do you explain that if you're totally reductionist too uh Gramsci, from the outset, set his face against this type of economism, and in his later years he developed a sustained theoretical polemic against precisely its canonization within the classical Marxist tradition. Two examples from different strands in his work must suffice to illustrate this point. In his essay titled The Modern Prince, Gramsci is discussing how to set about analyzing a particular historical conjecture. He substitutes for the reductionist approach, which would be read off which would read off political and ideological developments from economic determinations, a far more complex and differentiated type of analysis. This is based not only on a one-way determination, but on the analysis of the relations of force, and aims to differentiate, rather than to collapse as identical, the various moments or levels in the development of such a conjecture. Uh, and it cites Prison Notebooks 180-181 uh, to 181, hereafter, PN. I don't know what PN means in that. Oh, P here after prison notebooks. notebooks. Gotcha.
1: Uh, We're going to cover the modern prints. The thing about the prison notebooks is that there's multiple volumes. So 180 to 180, whatever is not actually very specific, but (laughs) we'll, we'll read the modern prints. Don't worry. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Uh. (laughs) That's where he like gets
0: out his whole idea of what a party should be. Mm-hmm. Um, okay,
1: so it's actually very important to read
0: yeah uh, he pinpoints this analytic task in terms of what he calls the decisive passage from the structure to the spheres of the complex superstructures in this way he sets himself decisively against any tendency to reduce the sphere of political and ideological superstructures to the economic structure or base he understands this as the most critical site in the struggle against reductionism it is the problem of the relations between structure and superstructure which must be accurately posed if the forces which are active in the history of the particular period are to be correctly analyzed and the relations between them determined. Economism, he adds, is in an inadequate way, theoretically, opposing this critical set of relationships. It tends, among other things, to substitute an analysis based on immediate class interest. And the form of the question, who profits directly from this, for a fuller, more structured analysis of economic class formations with all their inherent relations. And Prison Notebooks 163, but we just talked about how unspecific that is. It may be ruled out, he suggests, that immediate economic crisis of of themselves produce fundamental historical events. Does that, mean and still You don't see the italics, but Stuart Hall mentioned that that was uh, his italics. Um, Does this mean that the economic plays no part in the development of historical crisis? Not at all. But its role is rather to create a terrain more favorable to the dissemination of certain modes of thought and certain ways of posing and resolving questions involving the entire subsequent develop of a national life. Uh, Prison Notebooks 184. In short, until one has shown how objective economic crisis actually develop, by the changing relations in the balance of social forces, into crises in the state and society, and germinate in the form of ethical-political stru- struggles and form political ideologies, influencing the conception of the world of the masses, one has not conducted a proper kind of analysis hmm. rooted in the decisive, irreversible passage between structure and superstructure. The sort of immediate infallibility with economic reductionism brings in its wake, Gramsci argues, comes very cheap. It is not only has no theoretical significance, it also has only minimal political implications or practical efficacy. In general, it produces nothing but moralistic sermons and in- interminum. Interminable. Interminable? Is that a word? Interminable.
1: Yeah, interminable.
0: Okay, I guess my my vocabulary just does not have that one yet. Um, Interminable questions of personality. It is a conception based on the iron conviction that there exist objective laws of historical development similar in kind to natural law, together with a belief in a predetermined teleology like that of a religion. There is no alternative to this collapse, which Gramsci argues has been incorrectly identified with historical materialism, except the concrete posing of the problem of hegemony. It is kind of funny because what uh, what's being taken to task here with the economism is kind of how a lot of right-wingers try to reduce socialism to, to fit their arguments right. Um, it's it's the, the Jordan Peterson like, oh, if someone's rich, they must be evil. I can't do the Kermit voice.
1: <laughs> I can't do the Kermit voice either. Just imagine we're doing the Kermit
0: voice. <laughs> just uh, take that that Rainbow Connection song from the Muppet movie, and then say like the dumbest version of the most right wing shit, and there you go, Jordan <laughs> Peterson.
1: <laughs> um, um, interminable, just really quick, means like endless. Oh, easy. okay,
0: That's- okay, good. That that makes perfect sense there. My my lack of vocabulary just got confused. Uh, It can be seen from the general thrust of the argument in this passage that many of Gramsci's key concepts, hegemony, for example, and characteristic approaches, the approach via the analysis of relations of social forces, for example, were consciously understood by him as a barrier against the tendency to economic reductionism in some versions of Marxism. He coupled with his critique of economism the related tendencies of positivism empiricism, scientism, and objectivism within Marxism. This comes through even more clearly in The Problems of Marxism, a text explicitly written as a critique of the vulgar materialism implicit in Bukharin's theory of historical materialism, a manual of popular sociology. The latter was published in Moscow in 1921, went through many editions, and was often quoted as an example of orthodox Marxism, even though Lenin observed about it that Bukharin was unfortunately ignorant of the dialectic. (laughs) Lenin's always there with the digs. Um, In critical notes on an attempt at popular sociology, which forms the second part of his essay, The Problems of Marxism, Gramsci offers a sustained assault on the epistemologies of economism, positivism, and the spurious search for scientific guarantees. They were founded, he argues, on the falsely positivistic model that the laws of society and human historical development can be modeled directly on what social sciences conceived, falsely as we know, as the objectivity of the laws governing the natural scientific world. Terms like regularity, necessity, law, and determination, he argues, are not to be thought of as a derivation from the natural science, but rather as an elaboration of concepts born on the terrain of political economy. Thus, determined market must really mean a determined relation of social forces and a determined structure of productive apparatus, this relationship being guaranteed that is rendered permanent By a determined political, moral, and juridical Like, from a jury
1: (laughs) Juridical is like, you're overly You're overly focused on, like, the letter of how something's written So, like, you're a lawyer, kind of You're very into the idea of not interpreting anything
0: Yeah, Um, and if I could pronounce When you read the word, that's clear from the root word But I'm I'm stumbling, bumbling tongue man um, the movement in Gramsci's formulation from an analytically reduced positivistic formula to a richer, more complex conceptualization was framed within the social science, or framed with social science, is lucidly clear from that substitution. It, it lends way to Gramsci's summarizing argument that the claim presented as an essential postulate of historical materialism that every fluctuation of politics and ideology can be presented and expounded as an immediate expression of the structure, i.e. the economic base, must be contested in a theory as primitive infantilism and combated in practice with the authentic testimony of Marx, the author of concrete political and historical work. Um, And I think that, let's... Let's let that breathe for a second with the the fact that, um, you know, I mean, we've been talking about or kind of dancing around it, white supremacy, right? We've mentioned colonialism. We've mentioned race and gender. White supremacy makes sense that there's a deep economic base, and that was the formulation of it. But it comes from, you know, kind of a national identity, right? Rich white people didn't look at poor white people and go you know, oh, they're they're rich like me. We have the same economic interest. They went, oh, I need someone to help, you know, keep the slaves and help us keep colonizing, things like that. So there's definitely economic motives. Uh, but they're finding similarities to lean on, and those similarities have an immense amount of pull. Uh Marx talks about I'm trying to remember the quote, um, and it it might even actually be from the Manifesto, which is not a deep work of theory. It's a it's a rah rah pamphlet. Uh that the new world comes from like the the grave or the ghosts of the old world. I can't remember the exact quote. Hold on, let me see if I can find it. Uh, but basically, it when he's talking about superstructure, both coming from the base and from previous superstructure, right? So Marx Marx has a very explicit quote to that himself. Um, there are too many important social relations and factors in hegemony to, to whittle it down to what's economically convenient. And that's why you have, you know, poor white people that can be super duper racist, even though that's not in their economic interest, right? <clears throat>
1: this shift of direction, which Gramsci set himself to bring about within the terrain of Marxism, was quite self-consciously accomplished and decisive for the whole thrust of his subsequent thought. Without this point of theoretical departure, Gramsci's complicated relationship to the tradition of Marxist scholarship cannot be properly defined. If Gramsci renounced the simplicities of reductionism, how then did he set about a more adequate analysis of a social formation? Here we may be helped by a brief detour, provided that we move with caution. I love how Stuart Hall can only go like, three sentences without going on a, t- a total detour.
0: I, I, I totally relate to that. Speaking of detours, by the way, that, that Mark's quote is the tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brain of the living. And that was actually in the um, 18th room I got to read that again.
1: Althusser, who was profoundly influenced by Gramsci, and his co-authors of Reading Capital, Althusser and Balabar, London New Left Brooks, Books, 1970, make a critical distinction between, quote, mode of production, unquote, which refers to the basic forms of economic relations, which characterizes society, but which is an analytic abstraction, since no society can function by its economy alone. And on the other hand, what they call the quote unquote social formation. By this latter term, they meant to invoke the idea that societies are necessarily complexly structured totalities with different levels of articulation, parentheses, the economic, the political, and the ideological instances, close parentheses, in different combinations each combination giving rise to a different configuration of social forces and hence to a different type of social development. The authors of Reading Capital tended to give, as the distinguishing feature of the quote-unquote social formation, the fact that in it, more than one mode of production could be combined. So this is saying you can have like elements of feudalism in capitalism and, and so on and so forth. But though this is true, and can have important consequences, parentheses, especially for post-colonial societies, which we will take up later, close parentheses, it is not, in my view, the most important point of distinction between the two terms. In quote-unquote social formations, one is dealing with complexly structured societies composed of economic, political, and ideological relations, where the different levels of articulation, do not by any means simply correspond or, quote-unquote, mirror one another, but which are, in Althusser's felicitous metaphor, quote-unquote, overdetermining on and for one another. This is from Althusser's Four Marks. It is this complex restructuring of the different levels of articulation, not simply the existence of one or more modes of production, which constitutes the difference between the concept of quote-unquote mode of production and the nece- the necessar- necessarily more concrete and historically specific notion of a quote-unquote social formation. Now, this, is, this latter concept is the conception to which Gramsci addressed himself. This is what he meant by saying that the relationship between the quote-unquote structure and the quote-unquote superstructures or the quote-unquote passage of any organic historical movement right through the whole social formation from economic quote-unquote base to the sphere of ethico-political relations was at the heart of any non-reductionist or economistic type of analysis to pose and resolve that question was to conduct an analysis properly founded on an understanding of the complex relationships of overdetermination between the different social practices in any social formation. It is this protocol which Gramsci, per- Gramsci pursued in the modern prince. He outlined his characteristic way of analyzing situations. The details are complex and cannot be filled out in all their subtlety here, but the bare outlines are worth setting out, if only for purposes of comparison with a more economistic or reductionist approach. He, f- he considered that a, quote, an elementary, an elementary exposition of the science and art of politics, understood as a body of practical rules for research, and of detailed observations useful for awakening an interest in effective reality and for stimulating more rigorous and more vigorous political insights, end quote. A discussion, he added, which must be strategic in character. First of all, he argued one must understand the fundamental structure, the objective relations within society or the degree of development of one of the productive forces for these for these set the most fundamental limitations and conditions for the whole shape of historical development from here arise some of the major lines of tendency which might be favorable to favorable to this or that line of development the error of reductionism is then to translate these tendencies and constraints immediately into their absolutely determined political and ideological effects, or alternatively to abstract them into some, quote, iron law of necessity, end quote. In fact, they structure and determine only in the sense that they are, that they define the terrain on which historical forces move. They define the horizon of possibilities. They can, but they can, in neither the first nor the last instance, fully determine the content of political and economic struggles, much less objectively fix or guarantee the outcomes of such struggles.
0: I I think I like that analogy quite a bit, because when you have a terrain, right, it's going to determine how you move, how fast you can move. If the ground is soft, it can be difficult to move quickly without sinking in. If you're in water, you're going to have to move very quickly than on land, things like that. But it's not a pre-structured path. It's not like train tracks. Um, so I, I think that and does if a you, very good job. Oh,
1: go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, and if you misunderstand where you're going to put your foot, you're going to hurt yourself.
0: Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, like terrain does very much shape the way things go. It also makes going downhill a lot easier than going uphill. It's a very good analogy for how much social relations and economic relations determine revolution and determine history, but they're not deterministic, right? They are the foundation on which things move. They are foundation on which people can have thoughts and can have the capacity to put thoughts into action. They are the foundation on which certain decisions are made based on time and relations and and things like that. You know, you have to deal with wars and you have to deal with, uh, you know, natural resource distribution and weather and all of these things, as well as, of course, the economic relations, the social relations from the past, um, which, like we said, haunt the thoughts of the living, um, things like white supremacy. Uh, all of these things you know, change how revolutions go um, or if they happen or what those revolutions are for or who they're for. All of those things are, are big determining factors, but there's not like a set future history.
1: The next move
0: in the analysis
1: is to distinguish quote-unquote organic historical moments, movements which are de- destined to penetrate deep into society and be relatively long lasting from more quote occasional immediate almost accidental m- movements end quote in this respect gramsci reminds us that a crisis if it is organic can last for decades it is not a static phenomenon but rather one marked by constant movement polemics contestations etc <laughs> Just I love when a writer just puts etc. halfway through um, contestations etc. which represent the attempt by different sides to overcome or resolve the crisis and to do so in terms which favor their long-term hegemony. The theoretical danger, Gramsci argues, lies in quote, presenting causes as immediately operative, which in fact only operate indirectly or in asserting that the immediate causes are the effect only effective ones, end quote. The first leads to an excess of economism, the second to an excess of ideologism. Ideologism? Whichever. And then, parentheses, Gramsci was preoccupied, especially in moments of defeat, by the fatal oscillation between these two extremes which in reality mirror one another in an inverted form, And parentheses. Far from there being any law-like guarantee that some law of necessity will inevitably convert economic causes into immediately political effects, Gramsci insisted that the analysis only succeeds and is quote-unquote true if those underlying causes become a new reality the substitution of the conditional tense for positivistic certainty is critical. I think just something really important here is the reference that we're going to read more in a uh, detail when we actually read Gramsci, but the idea that we can have a crisis of capitalism more specifically that can go for decades. Um, so, you know, there's all the, all the stuff with Palancis and, and, even gramsci about fascism but like if we just look at neoliberalism we could you know do an analysis that is uh neoliberalism is more of one long crisis of capital rather than uh the the same kind of boom and bust that we usually get because we uh i am less than 30 and pretty much my whole Life. i've been going through economic crises but um a crisis here is is ideological and political as much as it is economic um so there's the whole idea of neoliberalism and it's it's not exactly people don't ever really like austerity um they they tend not to yeah (laughs) (laughs) and we have uh this whole thing with, you know, essentially since Bill Clinton, uh, each successive administration in the United States, and you could say that the same thing with Britain, um, they've been forcing austerity when there's massive, uh, discontent around it. Um, so this is a very, you know, you could just say this is a very long crisis going on that doesn't have an immediate end, uh, for the time being until, as we're going to see with Gramsci, until we organize um, and get, get active. To continue next, Gramsci insisted on the fact that the length and complexity of crises cannot be mechanically predicted, but develop over longer historical periods. They move between periods of relative quote unquote stabilization and periods of rapid and convulsive change. Consequently, periodization is a key aspect of the analysis. It parallels the earlier concern with historical specificity. Quote, it is precisely the study of these intervals of varying frequency which enables one to reconstruct the relations on the one hand between structure and superstructure and on the other, between the development of organic movement and conjunctural movement in the structure, There is nothing mechanical or prescriptive for Gramsci about this, quote-unquote, study. Having thus established the groundwork for a dynamic historical analytic framework, Gramsci turns to the analysis of the movements of historical forces, the relations of force as he calls it, which constitute the actual terrain of political and social struggle and development. Here he introduces the critical notion that what we are looking for is not the absolute victory of this side over that, nor the total incorporation of one set of forces into another. Rather, the analysis is a relational matter. That is a question to be resolved relationally using the idea of quote-unquote unstable balance or quote the continuous process of formation and superseding of unstable equilibria unquote the critical question is quote are our relations of forces favorable or unfavorable to this or that tendency unquote and Stuart hall emphasized favorable or unfavorable to this or that tendency this emphasis on relations and unstable balance reminds us that social forces which lose out in any particular historical period do not thereby disappear from the terrain of struggle, nor is struggle in such circumstances circumstances suspended. For example, the idea of the absolute and total victory of the bourgeoisie over the working class or the total incorporation of the working class into the bourgeois product is completely foreign to Gramsci's definition of hegemony though the two are frequently confu- though the frequently are two <laughs> though the two are frequently confused in scholarly commentary it is always the tendent tangential balance of the relations of force
0: which matters that was a brilliant paragraph of suck at Fukuyama. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well i
1: i think we also make this mistake in the left where we we, we are we do there's we a, overemphasize like how much the bourgeoisie is winning
0: or, or right well like even stuff. even in socialist existence right and and we talk about this you know this this is kind of an interesting conception because we're materialists and we revisit things and this is an interesting conception to look at Obviously, the state will wither away because there won't be class relations, but what does that withering away look like? What does that mean? How much time does that take? And we probably have to update that a lot more, and I think a lot of Marxists have been doing that over the last hundred years. Uh, As we've seen, you know, fascism lie dormant and then rise back up in in Eastern Europe and Russia and and places like that... Um, you know, former Soviet states, right, and, and how fascism took right over. It's there's an important part that, that comes back to stuff like Operation Gladio, but it's not all that. These forces still sit there and latent latently and then they come out and as those Soviet states uh collapsed or even other social states like Yugoslavia collapsed, you could see these forces come out and it was very genocidal, very deadly, um, you know, specifically in, in Yugoslavia. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we can't just assume that the, the, whole idea with like the new Soviet man is, is overly ambitious, you know, um, people tend to, the, the masses will change from their surroundings, right? Uh, the, the, the bulk of the people, the big chunk, I, I don't want to like slap percentages on it, but if I had to, you know, it would be like 60 or 80 or the, the most, right? And then there's like these little chunks of like hard left and hard right, Uh, ideological people based on family history, their own experience, things like that, um, that always kind of exist. And it's a matter of which one gets to shut up versus which one gets to be loud. And then normally the broad masses in the middle tend to follow the ones that are loud. But the one that that has to shut up could always rear back and take the broad masses with them. And those swings could be very quick and short-lived. We saw in 2020 with the, the George Floyd protests, a lot of that squishy middle ground people were, you know, very open to police abolition uh, and defunding the police. A lot of like soft right wingers like the moderate conservatives were like, yeah, you know, maybe police brutality is bad. And then a few months later, that movement lost steam and their you know, Republicans that that they look to for signals spoke up because they're still in power. And that shot right back. You know? I mean, I, I think it's important too that like the Democrats went whole hog mm-hmm. on rolling back any of the gains. Like mm-hmm. Adams, hard. The Adams Biden was, was oh yeah, Adam, cool. Adams is horrible. Biden was sitting there at a um, you know screaming fund the police. Was that at the State of the Union address? Yeah, it was. Too? Yeah, it was, he was screaming fund the police at a State said, of Union, the Union. Fund the police.
1: Union. Use your COVID money for the cops and not social services.
0: Yeah, like, <sighs> just, you know, and of course, it's easy to say and correct to say that Biden was a force of reaction the entire time, and Democrats were just co-opting the movement. But a lot of those, a lot of people that vote Democrat or, or are casually into politics and follow along were on board with that. And then as soon as their party piped up and, and said, nope, switch it the other way, they're right back on board, you know, so those people will change. Most people will change. But the fascism won't go away, and we're gonna deal with the same thing here. You know, if God help us, the United States collapse and we get to build something new, um you know some some sort of new formation um, based around land back and socialism and uh, you know a, a, a nation of New Africa uh, for the black diaspora in the country, you know it, whatever is formed in this place, it's not like the white supremacists are going to go away. It's not like their kids and grandkids, you know, they will be less white supremacists. Some of them won't be, but there's going to be a chunk that are, right? There's going to be a chunk that, are, the, the, this is the, the, you know, Gusano's um, Fidel took away my grandpa's plantation people or the egg monopoly. Yeah, those people aren't going away and we as socialists are not genocidal. We're not like killing them down to the last child of that group. So we have to be aware that these social groups will exist, And even if we did, you know, I don't think that's a materialist analysis, too. Even if you, like, took out all of the people like that, there would be someone that would discover that history and and be empathetic towards it. Um, So that's not going to go away. That's just going to be robbed of its power. And so we have to figure out, you know, as we look at the withering away of the state, wither it down to something that manages society, does not uphold one class against the other, But also prevents that counter revolution from rising again.
1: Polonsis expands. If you're interested in fascism, you should read Polonsis's like three different things on fascism, but he literally just has one called Fascism and the Third International. (laughs) Um, But in it, he expands on something that Gramsci touches on, but you know, is in jail, so he can't really go into it. And he it Palancis explains like this is the kind, this is the section of the petty bourgeois who can be swayed one way or the other. And then once fascism gets them, you're going to have a big problem. Mm, um, yeah. And it's exactly that it's, it's fascism is a force that's there, but it's not really there as a, a level of state control until they win the petty bourgeois or the petty bourgeois sympathizers. So, anyway. Gramsci then differentiates the quote-unquote relations of force into its, end quote, into its different moments. He assumes no necessary teleological evolution. Did we ever define teleological?
0: Uh, I don't think we did. Um so let's go ahead and, and define teleological that. is just like the study of how phenomena happen. I was gonna say I know it's a it's a word that's thrown around in, in a lot of academic circles, and when I've yeah. looked into theory, I've tried to keep my ear up for context clues, so I have a vague idea, but
1: it's essentially like the study of like how does fascism transform from neoliberalism or liberalism or something. It it's It's not looking at the ideological construction of those things. It's looking at, like, the transformation from one to the other. Gotcha. Okay. So, yeah, that's obviously an important thing to observe. (laughs) He assumes no necessary teleological evolution between these moments. The first has to do with an assessment of the objective conditions which place and position the different social forces. The second relates to the political moment. The, quote, degree of homogeneity, self-awareness, and organization attained by the various social classes, end quote. The important thing here is that so-called, quote-unquote, class unity is never assumed a priori. It is understood that classes, while sharing certain common conditions of existence, are also cross-cut by conflicting interests, historically segmented and fragmented In this actual course of historical formation, thus the quote-unquote unity of classes is necessarily complex and has to be produced, constructed, created as a result of specific economic, political, and ideological practices. It can never be taken as automatic or quote-unquote given. Coupled with this radical historicization of the automatic conception of classes lodged at the heart of fundamentalist Marxism, Gramsci elaborates further on Marx's distinction between quote-unquote class in itself and quote-unquote class for itself. He notes the different stages through which class consciousness, organization, and unity can, under the right conditions, develop. There is the quote-unquote economic corporate stage where professional or occupational groups recognize their basic common interests, interests but are conscious of no wider class solidarities. Then there is the quote-unquote class corporate moment where class solidarity of interests develops but only in the economic field. Finally, there is the moment of quote-unquote hegemony which transcends the corporate limits of purely economic solidarity, encompasses the interests of other subordinate groups, and begins to, quote, propagate itself throughout society, unquote, bringing about intellectual and moral, as well as economic and political unity, and, quote, posing also the questions around which the struggle rages, by creating the hegemony of a fundamental social group over a series of subordinate groups, end quote. This, it is this process of the coordination of interests of a dominant group, which the general interests of other groups and the life of the state as a whole, const, that constitutes the hegemony of a particular historical, blo- historical block. This is the the alliance between the, bourgeois and the petty bourgeois that I was Mm -hmm. describing before. Yeah. It is only in such moments of quote unquote national popular unity that the formation of what he calls a
0: quote collective will end quote becomes possible. And, and we're going to stop there both because I want to simmer a little bit on that paragraph because it presents a very strong, um, you know, spectrum of of something we'll see in in reality that breaks things down very very well, but also because you know Marx Manders tradition, we've read seven pages. That's an episode.
1: Uh, <laughs> only twenty
0: more to go. Only twenty four. Uh, so anyway, that's the most <laughs> Marx Madness of Marx Manders traditions. Um, but uh, what I want to talk about there is, is I, I just I would I would like to to sit on that idea because usually that class corporate stage is really what people are going to see, right? Um, this is how like, a lot of media propaganda goes. You know, They don't explicitly think about being in class alignment against poor people with military sources, right? Um, or with police sources, but they they see their interests as like, I want to get the story right and have a, a reliable you know, source of truth and, and cops want to make sure they give me the story or the military wants to make sure they give me their perspective and I get to point to an expert and say I'm the source of truth and and that's how a lot of that class solidarity goes. It's class functions as a broader set of aligned interests but, you know, that's why, like, the the whole thing's not thrown into confusion or or there's not an upheaval when Ron DeSantis, DeSantis spats with Disney, right? And this idea that the the class corporate moment can't exist is how you get shit like LGBT is a bourgeois you know thing Westerners are trying to push on the world and all that kind of like bigoted bullshit. Um, it's also important to see that there are those contradictions. You know, uh, the, the mentioned like class unity is not something we should assume a priori, and people that are not familiar with that I don't know about it in a philosophical concept because I obviously keep up with philosophy or we wouldn't be <laughs> on this podcast but I didn't exactly get educated in that uh, in fact Nathan who used to be on this podcast was um but you know anyone who's done any kind of like college debate has heard this one um, a priority and and it's something that I, I actually have kind of a tendency to do a lot myself because it's something you see when you can read someone's intentions or meaning assuming assuming their interest or their meaning in an argument and sometimes that could be useful right so like when i say biden sucks and then some dude with like a let's go brandon hat and a swastika on his neck says biden sucks i can a priori assume he's assuming biden you know doesn't want gay people and black people dead and that's his problem with them right but it can also be used in a very weak and destructive way, not only making assumptions, making you know theory and thoughts out yourself, and assuming people are just going to think a certain way, you know without asking them, without checking, without listening to the masses, assuming what the masses want. Oh, the masses would love you know bulk mass public transportation, well, I certainly hope they will, but I haven't checked you know that individually with the masses or how well that's going to be a difficult sell you know when when we get to socialism, like yeah, I mean. Extinction is bad, but you're going to have a hard time drilling that into heads with all the propaganda people have had so far. Um, And, you know, it's also the assumption that, like, poor people will be unified against racism and it ignores race and um, gender and all these, you know, colonized people aren't necessarily going to be anti-capitalist and poor people aren't necessarily going to support colonized people and, you know, white or or colonized people. people aren't you know going to be immune to misogyny right there's plenty of of black people um and indigenous people, and white, that, that, people. <laughs> and white people of course yes these are these are bigger issues among white people but these other groups are not exempt from this right women are not exempt from misogyny you can't just assume you know the this is why of course there's there's it's easy to point at like white women are conservative because they're white but then why is their interest lying there? You can't just assume their interest is lying as working class or as women, right? Um, so that's where you get like pro-life women and shit like that, right? Um, so you can't just make these assumptions about people because then you'll never understand class. And also circling back to the debate thing, you've got to be very, very careful with a priority because it it is the source of one of the weakest and most overdone type of argument by sophists, and that's a straw man argument. And the right will love to call everything a straw man, but everything, they, they, they love projection, too. And everything they do is a strong man, you know. Marx never understood history, and I can't do the fucking Kermit voice. <laughs> <laughs> um But yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that that's a deeply, and, and I, I think it's good that there's not just those two stages, you know. There's moments where, the class solidarity suddenly is there. You know, there's moments uh, where the ruling class, like, you know, sees a 9-11 attack and is like, oh, we need to do this for America. And that nationalism, like, comes about, right? And then there's hegemony, where that nationalism becomes, like, the central ideology top to bottom that you have to combat uh, in order to get to anything else.
1: Well, so if we even use a more modern uh, example, like... There was that brief moment of class solidarity or racial solidarity or the the confluence of both with Black Lives Matter actually taking Mm -hmm. off. And then it very, very quickly and very, very easily got Mm co-opted. And there was no way. I mean, like if you could be really cynical,
0: you could say like you were able to predict
1: it. But really, there was no way of knowing which way it was going to go right from the get go.
0: Yeah, those those are the moments revolution comes from, but also there those moments can fall hard. Yeah, so. I just thought of Eric Adams once you said, that. "Jeez." <laughs> uh, anyway, anyway, that's kind of what I want to stop at. because I, you know, that seemed like right. I just want I I hope that the listeners can go back to and just reread and simmer on and discuss with one another. You know, just that last paragraph. That's been kind of the most impactful paragraph I think I've seen so far. And it's not like we won't run into more impactful stuff with Gramsci and Emma Stewart Hall, but that just seems like such a total understanding that people need that I just I wish I could inject into everyone's veins and I'm I'm not always a wordsmith, but sometimes I can put things in a word pretty well and I've never found the way to really say that one well. And I really even though again it's a very dry academic way to put it and i'd like to to put it more in like a person-to-person talking way and i'll figure that out that's a really good clear concise well done well thought out understanding of class solidarity you know coca-cola and pepsi want each other to burn to the ground but then when they see you know a lawsuit against plastic bottles they'll lobby against it you know like that that's the way most class solidarity works Um, so with that, <laughs> this has been Mark's Madness, uh, part of Chunkaluta. We read books. There is a number of ways you can get a hold of us, uh, on Twitter. There's at Chunkaluta1973, at Mark's Madness pod, um, same two on Gmail, Chunkaluta1973 at gmail.com, Mark's Madness pod at gmail.com. Uh, both have a discord Mark's madness. Uh, you could just get into, um, it should be, the link should be in our Twitter bio, or you can email us about it. Uh, chunkaluta also has a discord, uh, that you can get access through Patreon. And I will let, uh, Shigmani too, when they come back, give more details on that and other fundraising efforts and things connected to chunkaluta. And with that, Perez, I will pass any plugs you want to you. Uh, I don't have any plugs. Go organize
1: so that next time a revolutionary moment comes.
0: Don't assume class unity a priori. (laughs) You know, (laughs) don't assume you're going to walk up to someone who you've never helped or talked to or anything and go, Oh, (laughs) yeah. Some of it's inherent to people because they've had the experiences, but they've also got to understand why you're on their side. And then some of it requires political education, you know, and some of it is political education that's going to cut against other interests people feel more strongly for. And you're going to have to either focus that on someone with more revolutionary potential or you're going to have to help that person get over that other interest. But you can't just assume everyone that has any interest shared with you is going to be on your side. Um, And with that, my name's David. I'm Perez. And we will talk to you next week. Bye.